Hello, this is Melissa. It is Real History on Thursday, the first day of February 2024, and I'm happy today to be talking again with Osman, who is uh, from Somalia and then England and back in Somalia and now not there. But anyway, we're going to hear about that when we speak. So hello. Hello, Melissa. It's uh, great to be back and talking with you again. Yes, How are you? I'm I am well, thank you. I'm doing well. And when you sent me an email about a week or so ago and suggested that we have a topic change, we had been thinking of spending a little bit of time in your area of training, which is biochemistry and we were going to apply that to happenings of that we've all been living through, you came back with a different topic. And I have to say that I've been doing a little bit of research on it, and it's interesting. So why don't you just start in on things that you're observing in Africa? Well, thank you. Uh, I'll do that. But before I get to Africa, I'd like to say a little about science. Recently, I think it was a... A week ago, uh, maybe a little earlier, but it, where you are in America, there was a, there was a scandal with the institute associated with uh, Harvard University, essentially part yes. of Harvard University. Yes. And uh, they were found to be uh, faking their research. A very eagle-eyed researcher, independent researcher, went through their papers going back many years and found that they'd... Uh, cheated on many things and published this and this was all out in the world, you know, a prestigious university like Harvard, who, who would ever question them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they had to retract six papers and they've had to pull back another 31 to correct them. It's a, it's a huge thing and um, it speaks a lot about what we discussed the last time about the science profession. That whole environment for me is you know, there's something very strange going on when you're when you're in there with them. The culture, um, it's so easy to, to cheat and to, to publish this kind of thing. And who would ever know in the, in the great um, wide world, especially people who are not involved in science. So I thought that was a huge story. The institute is called the Dana-Farber Cancer uh, Institute. So I think it's a big deal. Um, and it speaks of things that probably go on a lot more than than many of us would would like to believe. So there you are, connected to biochemistry. Yes, and I do think that is important. I did have a chance to look at what you sent me this morning, but not get into it too deep. But the thing that jumped out at me is that this was more than... This was intentional misleading. It was more than just taking something and using it because it was more convenient than your own original science. This was absolute altering of images, changing charts, splicing things together to give you an entirely different outcome of the study, which is absolutely shock. yeah. So absolutely, and it, it it says a lot about the culture. Um, you know, these people are, are highly paid. They they build their careers on, on prestige. Their employers, the, the universities and the institutes they work for are prestigious. And this is going on. So you have to ask, well, how much more of this is going on? What do they say to... Uh, like the, what we all lived through a, a couple of years ago. Well, four years ago now. Um, wow. Yes, wow. The politicians take advice from, from these people. Uh, it's, it's a big thing, and um, I think people should, should pay attention. But I think we should probably move on. Time is not enough um, <laughs> to discuss this right now. Yeah, so I, I'm in Nairobi at the moment, which is a, an interesting place, very international city. Uh, a lot of the, the UN agencies have big branches here. I think it's the the third or fourth most important place for for the UN. I'm not sure, but it's certainly a a regional hub for the UN and and other big organizations. So 
you can imagine what that means. Um, a lot of people from, from different parts of the world live here and work here with these agencies and, and big companies and so on. So you'll, you'll often run into Americans, and Europeans and people from the Far East and so on. So it's, it's a very interesting place. Okay, let me ask a quick question here. When some time back, when we communicated, you were going to have a little bit of a a holiday in Kenya, but now you've been there yes. for a long while. Can, do you want to talk about yes. why you're there or well, why well, you stayed? Funny, um, <laughs> I, I came. I came here initially for a month. Um, and I was working with a couple of guys who came down from, from Europe, from Greece. And we, it was for a factory visit. And that lasted three weeks or so. And the factory and the gentleman from Europe, they ultimately didn't agree to work together. So I, I decided to stay on. Um, yeah. so, so that's how I ended up spending a, a little extra time here in Nairobi. But Nairobi is interesting because it's connected to Somalia in a big way. Uh, a lot of the UN agencies I mentioned working in Somalia are based here. So mm-hmm. all of their back offices. My old employers, I worked on a, a World Bank contract previously, they're here as well. When I was based in Somalia, uh, five years ago or so. So it's, it's a place that's familiar to you if, you if you're working in Somalia because you often visit, which I, I used to do before COVID. You know, I would, I would come through here two or three times a year. Mm-hmm. But this is the, the longest I've spent here since early childhood, which, which is fun, actually, I have to say. And I get to speak English, which I don't get to do too much when I'm in Somalia. Make of that what you are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you want to just give a, the tiniest little recap of what you sent me in a message last week, or if you would like me to do that, um, you know, in terms of... Oh, I, I can... Okay, great. I can, I can certainly talk about it. Uh, it's, you know, it's it's quite a simple little thing, but it's, it's snowballed into, into something very big in this region involving several countries now. Mm-hmm. So on the 1st of January, there was a, a declaration, you know, you can't even call it an agreement between the, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, a man called Abiy Ahmed, and a regional leader inside Somalia of a state called Somaliland. Um, so they, they declared that they'd exchanged, you know, favors, essentially. So the Ethiopians said they, they're getting access to a part of the coast, Somalia's coast, and the regional state in Somalia said that they'll get recognition as an independent, internationally recognized state. And, you know, on the face of it, this is clearly strange, unusual, and very wrong when it comes to international law, because you have agreements between states. Um, everybody knows that, right? So you'll have treaties, you'll have accords, you'll have compacts, um, things of that nature. And it's, it's very, it's not complicated at all. The, the relationships between states are, follow certain rules and, and government to government, and documents exchanged and, and things develop from there. Never happens that a region or a, a constituent part of a country agrees with a neighboring country about international affairs. So it was odd to begin with. Um, so the Somali government protested and, and took action immediately and began to rally its friends and really sort of denounce this declaration because it's dangerous and could lead to conflict. That's the position of the Somali government. The Ethiopians at first sort of stuck by their they get into an agreement with the neighboring country, the neighboring uh, policy, but they've sort of um, found themselves stunned by the reaction from the reaction of, of ordinary Somalis to the reaction of, of big, powerful countries around the world who many have sided with Somalia and said that this is unacceptable and so on, you know, including the likes of Egypt, uh, 
the UAE, Turkey, and a number of others. And then last week or 10 days ago, we had the director of the Central Intelligence Agency arriving in Mogadishu. Um, this in itself is not unusual. It usually, it used to happen every so often, every few years or so, but normally when the director of the CIA arrives in Mogadishu, it's, it's in the middle of the night and the airport's blacked out and the plane is black and nobody really knows about it. And then mm -hmm. you get to hear about it in rumors a week later. But Here are a few things once you gave me... Daylight. Oh, I'm sorry, you cut out just a little bit there, I think. Possibly. Are you back? Yeah, I was just saying um, the director of the, of the CIA arrived in broad daylight, was met by the president of Somalia. They they were photographed together. They, they discussed matters of mutual interest, mm -hmm. um, which weren't elaborated on. But, I mean, we can all guess, mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, if, if, you're, if you're a little bit informed, it kind of makes sense that the, the situation with Ethiopia was mentioned between these two men. So a big thing, um, and potentially something that could, could lead to conflict. At the moment, there's no sign of that. Things are calm, but I guess it's, uh, it's very interesting, you know. So Ethiopia, the little, the tiny country of Djibouti is somehow implicated, as some people are saying, but I can't see them having done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, some are saying the United Arab Emirates are involved behind the scenes. Um, Again, I haven't seen them doing anything wrong. Mm -hmm. But um, the Ethiopians are really playing with fire because internally they have problems. And I guess they may have thought, well, let's, let's try and find some distraction from our own problems. Um, I'm, I'm speculating. I, I'll say that right now. But it just looks very odd. And, and, and it was unexpected. And it's had a huge reaction in this part of the world. Um, even here in Kenya, people talk about it and, and the possible consequences. So, there are a couple yeah, of things. Uh, when you gave me this heads up, there were a few things that I looked into that I found interesting that tied into it. First of all, I'll just say as a background, you talk about the region of Somaliland. And this has been an ongoing conflict within Somalia, I understand, for about the past 30 years, whereas this province likes to think of itself as independent. It is not. It is not recognized as independent by any external body or by the government of Somalia. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Legally speaking, it's just a... a, a, a so it has made this memorandum of understanding with... Yeah, it's made a memorandum of understanding with Ethiopia, but the first thing that I did was to see what is going on with Ethiopia separate from this agreement. And the first thing that I discovered is that it has recently been made a member of BRICS, which is the, the trading affiliation, you know, that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. So these are the main big countries that are bringing in smaller countries to be part of their group. We can look at, we can talk about BRICS later if we want to. So Ethiopia also has a, a rather long-standing background of alliances with Russia. And Somalia has been a place that has housed U.S. military bases for many, many years, up until Trump pulled out troops from Somalia, but they went back into Somalia as soon as Biden took office. So you've got that situation going on. And then just the other little piece of information, I looked into this Burns who is the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, who recently landed in Somalia and talked to the president. And he is a career, he's a diplomat. He's a career diplomat. He's had various State Department appointments for pretty much the entirety of his early career. And when he retired from diplomatic service, 
he became the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he was in that position for approximately, I think, six years until Biden wanted him to run the CIA. And the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace is a very interesting body. I just went back to the book Foundations, Their Power and Influence by Renee Wormser to look them up and think. And I just wanted to mention here, I don't have the year in front of me that they were established, but it said when Andrew Carnegie established the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, he gave the managers of this fund a difficult task. How were they to go about promoting peace? Well, when you look into the background of them, they are, is they're internationalists to the core. And the Carnegie Endowment for Peace has, you know, for most people who have looked into it over many, many years, is really nothing but an extremely powerful propaganda machine. And in fact, it was very frank in disclosing that function. This is from the book Foundations. It said it used terms frequently, such as the education of public opinion. The Wormser said this is not public education, but molding public opinion. The Carnegie Endowment uh, made its position clear in 1934 when it said economic nationalism, which is still running riot and which is the greatest obstacle to the reestablishment of prosperity and genuine peace, must be dealt with. Nationalism is a violently reactionary movement. So that's the position, and there does not seem to be any indication that this has changed. When you look at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, this is how it's described right now. The third most influential think tank in the world after the Brookings Institution and Chatham House. So that is what Burns was doing before he became head of the CIA. And you mentioned, when I look at Somalia just to see what what is news, what is going on there. And about the only thing that they'll tell the general public is that a couple of weeks ago, two members of the Navy SEALs went missing on some kind of a raid. They claimed that they were boarding a ship to get um, Iranian-made weapons and these two soldiers went missing and are presumed dead at this point. But you made the interesting observation, uh, well, which I'll let you elaborate on. But when you, who does Somalia face? What country does Somalia face across its waterway? Oh, Yemen. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a near neighbor. It's, it's just across the it's just across the water. Um, so Somalia, especially northern Somalia, is is very much connected to the, what's going on up there. But Somalia is not actively involved. It hasn't been. Uh, it's not a policy of Somalia to to get involved in in the conflict uh, on one side or the other. At the moment, Somalia follows rules and is just focusing on rebuilding itself and developing as the country has missed out on so much development because it was involved in internal conflict for so many years. But yeah, it, it just looks to me like all of the things you said were correct. Um, I think William Burns was a diplomat his whole career until very recently, a very um, respected diplomat. I think he was in Russia for a while as the ambassador of the United States. Mm-hmm. presumably speaks very good Russian. So things are, are changing fast all over the world, I guess, but um, you just feel it when you're here. Things are, are changing quite quickly. Um, it's palpable. So Yemen is, is just across the water, and every big country is interested in, in this part of the world all of a sudden, you know, for all of these reasons, um, not least the security aspect. We all know about the, the volume of maritime traffic, especially when it comes to oil and, and petroleum products being shipped to, to Europe. 
through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, that's all been pretty much stopped at the moment because of the, what's going on with the, with the attacks on, on shipping. So I don't think it's a coincidence that the director of the CIA arrives here in this part of the world. He also traveled to Nairobi, by the way, which is also interesting as soon as he left uh, Somalia. You just get the feeling all of these things are somehow connected. Mm-hmm. And it's worth paying attention. At least that's, that's how I feel. There was another little interesting thing that I found in the publication, The Conversation, and this was talking about the military situation in Somalia. And it I'll, I'll just read a tiny little bit here as to what might ultimately be going on here. It said, over the past few years, the China-U.S. rivalry has intensified. And over the past year, the U.S.-Russia rivalry has exploded, partly influenced by the outbreak of the Ukraine war. This is not a brand new article here. These rivalries have large-scale impacts at the Horn of Africa. It is notable that the American redeployment announcement, so sending troops back into bases in Somalia, came days after the electoral defeat of Somali president, I'll just say Formaggio. The former Somali president was a close ally of Russia's new friends in the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia and Eritrea. The newly elected Somali president, and that is um, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, or I'm sorry, I don't think I said the last name correctly, but he is not so much a friend of Russia at all and has pointedly welcomed U.S. redeployment there. So these are interesting things to consider when you look at U.S. hegemony and power struggles. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is very interesting, and just as you say, when one president left and was replaced, the, the dynamic changed and the U.S. personnel returned. Um, they're in a big place called Balidogle, which is to the west of Mogadishu. It used to be the headquarters of the Somali Air Force, and it ostensibly still is, but there's not much of an air force these days. Sometimes you get to see photographs of what, what's going on there, but nobody really has a clue. But it's a pretty big base. There, there are a couple of others, but they're, they're smaller. So, as you rightly say, this is, this is an interesting dynamic when one Horn of Africa country seems to be tilting in one direction. Its neighbor it obviously looks like it's tilting in the opposite direction. And as I said before, there is a potential for conflict here in, in the future, um, armed conflict, I mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wouldn't want to see that. I'm sure millions of others wouldn't want to see that. But ordinary people don't get much of a say in these things, sadly. So, yeah, interesting is the word. Mm-hmm. So do you... Uh, is there anything else... Um, based on the work that you have been doing in Somalia that you've observed that might factor into future conflict or avoidance of conflict? In terms well, um, yeah, I think um, if the, the local capacity in Somalia, so the, the state functions, continue to improve, then there's a very good chance Somalia avoids conflict. Uh, with its neighbors and, and and avoids being dragged into some of these um, extraordinary events with, with you know the, the shipping being disrupted uh, on the high seas and, and what have you so if if we speak about the desire of, of local people um, especially the business community for example that's the consensus people have had enough of conflict at every level. So it's a case of seeing that state function return and sort of insulate the country from 
from these dangers. And one would hope that's the way it's going to go, but it's uh, certainly interesting times. We say it again. So are you thinking that you'll be in Nairobi for a a continued amount of time, kind of extending what you're doing there? No, not really. I'll be going back to Somalia. Okay. um, Fairly soon, I'd say, uh, probably in the next month or so next three weeks but that's to be decided I have a few things I must do here but they're all Somalia related a lot of meetings are with people who are working directly in Somalia or other big organizations I was telling you about I'm I'm something of a freelancer now so it's it's not easy to plan now Uh, but Somalia is never easy I, I, I say that with some confidence I'm sure that there are people who will listen to this conversation who did not hear the first conversation that we had. So I wanted to just put in there very quickly that your father was also a career diplomat in Somalia many years ago. And that after... Yeah, I was going to say after a uh, kind of scary regime change he ended up moving the family out to Nairobi when you were all quite small. But you you were on a, I guess, living as a very young child at the embassy there in Nairobi. And when I spoke to you, you, you had gone from Nairobi, then I think directly to England, and you did all of your education there and then went back to Somalia and this trip that you're currently still on was your first time back in Kenya since you were literally a toddler and you were really looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's correct. Um, uh, to correct you though, on the, on the embassy, that, that was in, uh, neighboring Uganda. Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, but we did come here and we, we, we did stay here for about 18 months. Mm-hmm. When I was very, very young. And then we moved on and eventually ended up in England via Libya. Very curious. I know it was, it was a great, great experience, Libya, in those days. N- nothing like it is today, sadly. It's one of those victims of the modern world. But, uh, yeah, that's how I, how I ended up in Europe and, uh, pretty much stayed in Europe for much of my life until I, I came back to East Africa about well, 11 years ago now, mm. to start working. And it's funny because even, you know, when I came back, I, I would travel backwards and forwards to, to Europe, to England, and other places like, like Switzerland and, and what have you. And even there, I've now noticed big changes. Um, the, the, those countries are, are not happy places, if you can put it that way. Um, whether it's cultural or economic, you know, everything seems to be on, on the decline. And you really notice that when, you, when you've been away from, from Europe and you find yourself visiting, as I did last year, briefly. But um, for me personally now, it's like, I like being here in East Africa because everything's so vibrant, everything's growing. You are not subjected to the sort of the big cultural shift that, that are occurring in, in places like London. Yeah, after a while, you get worn down by those things. I'm generally very happy in this, this part of the world. That's my connection to Europe, through my, through my dad's adventures. <laughs> well, I think it's good that you made your way back there. You said that it had always been, even though you left when you were really young, it was just in your, in your blood, in your marrow, and you felt that you needed to return, and you have. And I, I think what's interesting is that you've, re, you've been able, because of the background and your education, you've been able to return not just as someone who is living there and enjoying the vibrancy, but actually participating significantly in the rebuilding or fortifying of the country is perhaps a way of saying it. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a thankless task, and when you're in Somalia, you know you you learn quickly that you want to see big changes. You have to be patient because most of the people there they they think that you know, um, which is just I guess human nature. But they think that if you've been to Europe, you should pretty much, or or the US or, or Canada, you know, you should pretty much spend most of your time in those places because they're developed and you can work and make money and that kind of thing. That's been a learning experience for me. It's like, well, countries develop because the, the local people develop them. You know, if everybody leaves and goes to Canada or the U.S., nothing is going to change right. uh, for the better. Mm -hmm. so, so that's the attitude I arrive with. And um, at first they look at you very strange. You know, they, they, they think you, you're not exactly right in the head. But um, after a while they see that, you know, you, you're adding value, you have certain skills that, that are lacking. But as I say, it's a thankless task because... Where do you begin? Um, you have to find like-minded people. That's a huge challenge in Somalia, believe it or not. You have to be in the big city, I've found, especially lately, because the provinces, and I guess that's the same in every country, but things are a little bit slow or slower in the, in the regions. But yeah, it's, it's a big adventure. I, I do enjoy being there, but it's, it's, it's a challenge at the same time. You know, it, it tests you. So, I guess it's not for everybody, but I'm glad I, I came back. And it, it would have been a shame to go back when you're, you know, like when you're forced to go back. You say, "I've had enough of of Europe," and, and you're and you're in your sixties, let's say. Mm -hmm. Then it would be very hard. But um, for me, it's, it's, you know, I can cope with these challenges for the moment, um, at least. The other thing, too, that I was struck by in the first conversation, and particularly when I was illustrating it after we spoke, because that gave me the opportunity to research it further and actually read the poetry of famous Somali poets and listen to music, I, I remember you saying something like there was a an unbelievable richness of the Somalis who were f spread across the world. In other words, there are, because of the conflicts in the country, so many people were forced to leave or felt that they had to. So wherever you travel in the world, you're likely to find a community of Somalis. But I think just because of my general ignorance of Africa, I was really struck by the incredible cultural and historical richness of Somalia. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, in many ways an extraordinary country. You know, there's a lot of things that are unique about uh, Somalia. Um, it's maintained, uh, so the richest thing I think is, is linguistic. Um, the language is very, very old. And you you will often find words that are shared with places like ancient Egypt. So you know historical or cultural artifacts from from ancient Egypt have their parallels in Somalia, even to this day amongst uh, nomadic people. Mm -hmm. So things like um, little daggers or a sort of a headrest, which isn't exactly a pillow, but that's what it would be translated to. You'll see that in, in Egyptian hieroglyphics and you'll see it being used to this day by, by pastoralists. And that makes you really think, you know. Um, but you have to be somebody who's, who's encountered, you know, museums with, with ancient Egyptian artifacts or at least read about them mm -hmm. to appreciate this. I, I, I would like to spend time actually doing research into that because my father used to be a, into that in a big way, so, so I, I have some understanding of it. He would go to places like the British Museum and find all kinds of extraordinary things um, connecting the cultures from this, you know. So there's like a, an ethnic group or a big sort of um, linguistic group that goes, stretches from, from Somalia all the way to Egypt and then westwards towards Morocco. But um, those guys up there now all speak Arabic because of um, 
the spread of um, Islam. But in Somalia, people still speak Somali, which is, is quite useful. Um, a minority do speak Arabic, but uh, you know, very well. But um, you just get the f- feeling that you know something's been preserved here. Um, that's made it easier for people to be close knit and to sort of take their their community with them or find their community when they go to another country. So it's funny, the Congresswoman Ilhan Omar today spoke about this issue with Ethiopia and the regional polity in Somalia, Somaliland, uh, and she, she made some statements in support of the Somali government, which again I think is not a coincidence. So that's uh, an example of somebody having left this part of the world to, to live in, in America. Mm-hmm. It's become quite prominent. But if this has all happened in the last 30 or 40 years, this um, diaspora has, has grown to be hugely significant. I mean, who knows what the future holds, but it's, I think they'll have an influence back in this part of the world. They already do financially. I mean, they, they, they kind of drive the economy with um, if it's sending money back to their relatives or, or buying houses or what have you, or opening businesses. That's quite common now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's looking promising. I think there's every reason to be confident that the country will is over its, its uh, troubles. But still, there's a lot of hard work in terms of building things ahead of everybody. And then, um, and I personally like that. <coughs> but you you like the hard work? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah the idea that you can actually build something. I mean, build something for yourself, or you can build something for your community, you can build a businessman. Uh, I'm not talking, uh, you know, as an individual uh, myself, but in general, you know, that that sort of um, enterprise culture is, is really evident. People are uh, really trying to, to improve their lot, doing all kinds of things, um, and it's, it's impressive to see, I mean, because... They're starting, or they did start from a very low base, say, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. Um, in some towns, there, there was like literally nothing, and they've created towns, and, uh, communities, local administrations, pretty much from scratch in some places, which is impressive. Um, you only see that in the history books when you're in Europe, or I'm sure it's the same in, in the U.S. I don't know, the U.S. is a special case because it is a new country, um, and the sense of people having built something up is, is still in people's consciousness. Uh, mm-hmm. But in Europe, no, everything's old. So Somalia, you know, you get that uh, pioneering or enterprising feel wherever you go, which is, which is interesting. Um, again, I like being there, and, and that's why I'll be going back before too long. We just hope that, you know, that this continues, that it doesn't find itself crossways in some, you know, larger geopolitical jockeying for position. That may Absolutely. Be, yeah. But there's, 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 I mean, I agree with you, um, but the, there's reasons to be optimistic. I mean, as long as the, the high-level political leaders act responsibly, and so far that's what's been happening. Um, you, you, you get a sense that you know, there's, there's every chance they'll be successful. Hopefully that's, that's how it, how it develops. What else in the region or in life or around the world do we want to take on? Well, I mean, um, I think we should say something about this... Uh, all of these conflicts happening in the world, uh, you know, not to speak about them in great detail, but you can see that, you know, mistake after mistake or, you know, belligerent act after belligerent act was was um, undertaken or perpetrated. And it's led us to, to really dangerous, I think, crossroads. Uh, people have to really think that if they don't pull back in this uh, in the Middle East, in, in Gaza, Israel, uh, this this could really get 
much bigger, pulling in other other countries, um, that will naturally have an impact on on everyone, um, and I guess this part of the world also, which ordinary people don't want to see, but just wonder about the wisdom of uh, the big leaders in the, in the world these days. But yeah, I mean it's the same in in Europe. So this this conflict, this uh, ongoing war in Ukraine is it, it just makes you wonder how how did it get to this um and now in europe they're they're all scared of being invaded all of a sudden you know two years ago it was a case of oh we'll we'll deal with these russians very quickly so now a new message is being sold to the public which that in itself is interesting you know so everything is driven by memes and and public relations and bearing the mind of the of the masses but you just have to ask yourself, is it worth it, you know, is it worth all this uh, destruction? My answer is no. I hope most people would agree. I, I, I do think, you know, that, that most people just want to go about their lives that don't pay that much attention to it. And they do want to be left alone or they don't want to see their country get involved in some long protracted conflict somewhere. But um, just think, for instance, how long this Ukraine situation has been going on. And it's so easy, like you say, with memes. I, I saw something last week where the head of NATO, the top-ranking Admiral Bauer of, of NATO, was speaking somewhere, and he was telling Europeans that they had to be prepared for the possibility of a war with Russia or Russian invasion at some point in the next 20 years. And in in a way, it's kind of laughable because, you know, anything could happen in 20 years. But if you're looking at, you know, you're so he was planting in the minds of average people, Swedes in particular, he was saying that this invasion from Russia could happen in Sweden. So you, we have always yeah. our, our fears being played upon, and it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's always the way. It's always the way. Yeah, and we had a whole Go cold ahead. war. Well, I was just saying that you know the whole cold war. I mean, I am actually old enough to have gone through this kind of an exercise as a very young child in school. We had to get under our desks as if this was going to protect us from some kind of nuclear explosion. And we would have drills and all of the students would get under their desks as a drill during the Cold War. And... Yeah, it... it oh. Go ahead. No, I mean I, I've seen I've seen um, films of that, and uh, it's it's quite amazing. It's the idea of scaring the public it seems to me more important to the decision makers and the people with authority than anything else. Mm -hmm. Because once you get the public scared, in rather big countries, uh, European countries, it's the same in North America then you can get them to go along with, with uh, whatever project. And I think now we're in this stage where people have to be scared of Russia. And, and it's easy to be scared of Russia if you don't know anything about Russia. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's my conclusion. But if you do a little bit of studying about that country, you'll find that it's, um, number one, not likely to invade any Europeans anytime soon. I guess the second thing is that they've done very well to, to survive uh, probably huge social economic disaster in the 1990s. To be even, you know, a normal country again is quite an achievement for Russia. But most people don't know this, so it's easy to, to just believe the caricature version mm -hmm. of, of what Russia is. Uh, there, there are a couple of things that I find interesting f um, from the U.S. perspective is that the schizophrenia of the way the 
Cold War was played out on the minds of the American people. And the example is, okay, I had to go under my desk and this idea of a nuclear war with the Soviet Union, this was very, very real. And someone sent Alan a, uh, well, let's say it was a Time or one of the big magazines that was from the 60s in which it was mocking the idea of reds under the bed. You know, that this was not, let's say, 20 or so years after or 25 years after the House Un-American activities, but the media, including all of the magazine publications and newspapers were mocking the idea of an imminent threat from the Soviet Union or the idea that uh, Soviet spies were in the country or that there was any undue influence from the Soviet Union in the United States. So this is schizophrenic. You know, we're, we're under our desks and we're being told that this is a big joke. That's the U.S. perspective, yeah. but my understanding I, of the, the U.K. in talking with people or emailing with people from that area, what I, my understanding is that this Cold War mentality never ceased in the U.K., and I'd, I'd like to know if you find that to be true. In other words, the big bad bear has never ceased being a threat in the minds in, in in the way that it's used in propaganda aimed at the general population of Great Britain. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. I don't think um, negative attitudes towards Russians ever went away in, in the United Kingdom. I was in uh, in the lovely city of Newcastle in early twenty. 22. Um, I was there for a week, and it's funny you say this because I was in a in a restaurant, and they had a TV monitor up high up on the wall, and there was no sound, but it was the news just going round and round. And naturally, the news was the Ukraine situation, and um, there was an image of the Russian president Vladimir Putin being interviewed, and. You know, the, there was no sound, so it's just him speaking in, in Russian, of course. So the lady the, that owns the, the, the restaurant looked at the TV and said, oh, I hate that man, you know. It made me think, you know, it's like, you know next to nothing about that country, I'm sure, but mm -hmm. you've been conditioned to hate that man and, and perceive him as a threat. Um, and that's in Newcastle, which is the, the northeast of England, a place which... I don't think has had any sort of contact with Russia anytime recently. But yeah, it makes you think. Uh, and it's probably just a function of TV, films, books on the subject of uh, Soviet spies and how dangerous they were. But the thing I found really funny um, in recent years is when you look into it, you'll find that the, the socialists who are wealthy in the United Kingdom, especially in the 20th century. So the big, I remember reading about a guy that ran a company called Northern Foods. He had strong connections to other men who would visit the Soviet Union on fact-finding missions. And this was going on since the 1920s, um, like unbroken. And they were taking over technology and whatever the, the Russians and the Soviets needed. So there was always a connection with uh, a certain upper-middle-class part of, of Britain, who I don't know were sympathetic to the Soviet Union. But the Russia of today is, is a little bit different. Um, it's pretty insular. It, it doesn't really need anything from, from Western Europe. Mm -hmm. So why, why would it invade it? It's a logical question. It's, it's strange, actually. Yeah, it's, a, it's this idea that the... Russia of today is set on the empire-building expansion of the Soviet Union. And the situation in Ukraine is based on a, a, a long history 
in that region with Russian-speaking people who feel more connected to Russia than Ukraine, this disputed region. So that that is an isolated thing. We don't. I can't see expansionist ideas coming out of Russia in the last twenty years. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think you're right. Um, but um, who who's going to pay attention to to that way of thinking in the, in the media or? high-level politics in any of the Western countries. I think even if you advocate for a rational uh, debate on on the issue of Russia and, and the threat it poses, you are automatically labeled a sort of a Putin sympathizer or, a, or a apologist, which is which is kind of crazy if you, if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really is. And any of these, I mean, we were just talking about Carnegie, but the, the endowment, their endowment for so-called peace, uh, which is quite Orwellian, I think, but most of the people who purport to be looking for peaceful solutions to global geopolitics don't separate themselves from either the big bad bear or the dangerous dragon. It's this, this rhetoric, this clash between these three entities and a hegemonic struggle, it's just underlies everything. And in the general public just gets it in in memes, so that, you know, the restaurant owner said, I hate that man. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, if, if you're, let's say, lacking in awareness, you will probably have the same reaction because you will have been conditioned to watch the TV news and, and hear the same messages. But we, we are definitely living through interesting times because you have alternative opinions now just being expressed by very famous people. Tucker Carlson, I think, is, is a good example. And it's interesting because there's no comeback. You know, he's famous enough to say something that makes people stop and think. And when they do stop and think, they realize they've been told uh, a lot of falsehoods for a very long time. Um and I can see that accelerating or, or getting bigger. It's not sustainable for for this one caricature message to, to cause so much harm indefinitely. So something has to give. The one thing that we can hope, uh, having you know this this last four years of a kind of relentless, fairly uniform narrative that we all had to abide by or or else and so we saw so many of our remaining rights taken away I, I think we can just hope that people don't forget that and that they can equate in their minds that their governments who lied to them about such important life threatening or, you know, life, life was in the balance. It has been in the balance and we've seen the fallout and we are seeing it. And if people can hold in their minds, these are the same governments who coerced us into doing these things that were not for our good, who are telling us that we need to be afraid, terrified of the idea that we might be invaded by Russia or, uh, or, or the same governments who are telling us that we have a huge vested interest in the Middle East, you know, that we have to be involved in an ever-expanding conflict there. Why would your government, who's lied to you relentlessly, 
all of the sudden change its tack and not lie? That's a very good question. Um, they're not likely to change tack. That's what you've got to be mindful of. But, um, I mean, the two of us know that it's only a minority of people who can actually stop and, and take a step back and look at things objectively and, and even maybe be able to deal with their feelings on these subjects. But the majority are, are fearful people. It has to be said. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when I was in England four years ago, during all of that um, fear episode, uh, Project Fear, as it was called, it was it was astonishing. You know, when you see adults are willing to give up any sort of uh, capacity they have for for thought or self determination, and are willing to sacrifice all the rights or all of the whatever it is they have that they, they probably don't even think about in exchange for protection from their fears from whatever it is that's been put out there it's, it's astonishing it was eye opening for me I, I never expected it such a reaction but I get the feeling now even that it was a surprise for the powerful government itself they didn't think they could be so successful uh, especially initially uh, mm -hmm. Power of the fear waned, I think, after a while, but people got frustrated. They didn't want to be locked in their own homes uh, after seven months. So something again had to give, but the precedent was, was set. It was done effectively once. I think it can be done again in those societies because you have atomized people. You have people who are naturally fearful. Why they're so fearful, it's hard to say, but I think it's because the culture changed. People of a hundred years ago would never in a million years have behaved in that way. They, they, they would have laughed at much of the absurdity. I think the mobile phone probably is the biggest driver of all these things. Uh, so everybody's dominated. Well, not everybody, but most people nowadays are, are controlled by memes. The, the, the way we used to think of you know, fashion changing every six months, you know, what people wear, is now accelerated to a stage where what people think, what people feel, how people act can be changed, you know, in, in hours, depending on yes. viral videos going, going around the world. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it comes down to the quality of people. I think you should be hopeful, as you say, but if people are easily scared, then we're in for a rough ride, I think. Well, we, we, we hope for the best. This has been a really interesting conversation. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure that other people have too. But I also want to give you the opportunity, if there was something else that we failed to cover that you wanted to mention, let's do that. No, I can't really think of anything. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Melissa. I, I, I really enjoyed speaking with you again. And um, let's try to do it again in the in the not-too-distant future. Yes, let's do, because I do think that you are in a region that is going to factor into the overall global situation, so that'll be interesting. So thank you very much, Osman. My pleasure. And for everyone out there, next week is the second Thursday of the month, and that means that I'll be having another conversation with Neil Foster, so tune in then. Uh, I still use that old-fashioned tune-in. There's nothing to tune in, but, but check it out, and I thank you, and have a good week.